You're listening to episode 50 of season 13 of the GNU World Order. Hey everyone, this is Klaatu. I've got lots and lots of listener feedback to cover. Two different angles. One is going to be a Linux origin story, and then the other is going to be a response to a previous Linux origin story, uh, specifically about a Nintendo Switch being problematic because it's, well, Nintendo. So let's start with the, the innocuous one first. This is very long, so I might have to cut little bits and pieces out of it just to to keep within a reasonable amount of time. But here we go. This is from Kevin, or Kevon maybe. I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. I'll assume Kevin for now. He writes, My family is not one filled with technical people or those considered computer savvy. So my upbringing, quote unquote, in computers, in computing was almost entirely self-taught, self-motivated. I took every computer class I could manage to enroll in while still having enough credits to graduate, and generally it ended up with my teachers telling my parents they couldn't teach me anything I didn't already know. I would usually go and research what was taught and complete it to a further degree than expected. I started getting my family's leftover computer parts, Pentium 2s, 3s, 4s, AMD K6 processors, 40 gig hard drives, 1 gig or less memory uh, of memory. At that time, I think the latest release of Windows was Vista. Most were still on XP, and I knew my system's couldn't boot Vista, so I tried to slim down my Windows XP build as best as I could and keep the machine responsive. Eventually, in high school, I'd read a book called Hacker Cracker by Ejovi Nuer, or Nuare, I think that's the name, and he was talking about how if you wanted to be good in security or computing, you needed to get yourself a Unix. He specifically recommended the BSDs, and so I went off reading about free BSD. My interest became clear to some old family friends of mine who are certainly more technical, and they offered to help. However, despite my wishes to have FreeBSD installed, my friend decided that BSD was too great a leap for a Windows user, and he started me off with Fedora Core 4. I continued using Fedora till Core 5, then dropped it and was using Ubuntu 4.04 through till their 7.04 release. Running my own web server had been a novel idea, and had helped me, and as Ubuntu Canonical continued to make changes to source code and unneeded symlinks in the system to move HTTPD to Apache, and later Apache 2, and again to uh, Apache 2.2, and auto-generated files, which I couldn't easily drop in, like HTTPD.conf, I started looking elsewhere. I distro-hopped for years, ran CentOS on server, and even desktop for a while, GNU-Sense, which I still remember as GNU-Sense. It was horrible. Kubuntu, FreeSpire, and probably another 20 or 30 I won't take time to mention. The, the, the quote, bleeding-edge aspect in most distributions just didn't do it for me. I wanted a system that was stable and always worked, booted, and did things I told them I told them to, 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 and, and did things when I told them to not when it felt like it. The idea that an update to my server could not just overwrite the config, but also break the install itself was a serious frustration. Even Debian fell short of stable, and for years I couldn't discover why I understood what their package splitting mechanism in aptitude was. Um, I don't know if I read that right. He says, and for years I couldn't discover why until I understood what their package splitting mechanism in aptitude was. Eventually in 2007, I decided to go hardcore, 
quote-unquote. And the options were generally Arch, Gentoo, and Slackware for that. Arch seemed too like too much of a stretch, as it can be custom, but the frequent updates and breakages are notorious. Slackware became my go-to choice for all things stable, and I've basically stuck with it ever since. And he goes on for a little while after that, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna stop the 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 email there just because that's kind of the that's the origin story part. The rest of it's more about sort of how he sees Linux and what he's using right now and so on. To comment on a couple of the origin story aspects, I think something that certainly I can identify with is this angle here where he says uh, I generally uh, ended up. It generally ended up with my teachers telling my parents they couldn't teach me anything I didn't already know. I don't know how how many of you, dear listeners, have had that same experience, but I remember in the computer classes that I had in in uh, you know that pri- whatever it's called primary education or whatever. Um, I, I remember it being a common a common thing that my my teachers would report back that. I didn't need their help, and sometimes that they needed my help. And I, I, I feel like that might be a pretty common origin story feature among a certain crowd, and I'm wondering if that is something that you, dear listener, have have experienced. I, I don't know how you're going to relay to me whether that is or not. You could certainly email me or message me on Mastodon, I guess, but you don't have to. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. I'm just kind of highlighting that to think... To, to have you think back and 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 remember if that was something that happened for you. And then I think it's an interesting mental exercise to, to think about why it happened. Certainly for me, it wasn't because I'd intentionally learned about computers, honestly. I, I found them enjoyable at home, and we had a computer at home, so I was able to, to play around on the computers and sort of just become... You know, it, it became... I, apparently a second nature to me to to the degree that my teachers felt and, and most of my fellow students felt that I was uh, way way beyond them now if you'd asked me up until well after I had dropped out of university whether or not I was indeed a computer person I would have insisted that no I was not because in my mind I really wasn't it was just something that I did for fun it wasn't something that I thought was that I was actually interested in and so on and I guess it's weird in life how it takes you a while sometimes to recognize what interests you and I I don't know if that's true for everyone so I'm just I'm kind of throwing this out there it just feels to me like sometimes in real life you 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 kind of make a mistake about something about something that interests you or you think you're interested in something and then as you grow up you realize that you're not really into that you just kind of inherited it because it was what your family was into or whatever and it's just so fascinating to me that sometimes we can almost misdiagnose our own interests and certainly with with computers it was that was the case with me i i misdiagnosed that i was that i was I, I wasn't interested in computers. Although, to be fair, I guess you could say, strictly speaking, I'm not interested in computers. Because if it wasn't for open source, I wouldn't have sort of fallen for computers. The thing that really made me get into computing was open source. Without that, I, I would pretty easily walk away from computers and find the same kind of satisfaction of hacking on something in some other aspect of, of life, whether it was music or gaming or, or just 
gardening, whatever, carpentry, who knows? Who knows what I would take up? But it would be something that that had similar freedoms to open source because it isn't just the computer. I, I can I can sort of verify that by my lack of interest in other platforms, my deep interest in, in open source and in Linux and and I've got the uh, the the years of of wasted time <laughs> on computers to prove it. Let's see what else did he say that that sort of rang true for me. It's kind of interesting here that he so he wrote a read a book called Hacker Cracker. I had not heard of that one, and it's interesting that the the author specifically recommended BSD for for learning Unix at that time. I mean Vista was out. I feel like a lot of the a lot of the stuff out there about technology was kind of going in the direction of hey want to get away from vista why not try linux it's interesting that he stumbled across you know the the one book that that specifically recommended bsd i mean it's a fair it's a fair recommendation i'm not saying that's not the thing to recommend it's just it, it is interesting to me that that that's what was recommended in this book and again i've never read it so it may be very on point for the topic and it's it's funny that the next paragraph kind of confirmed what I was thinking, which was that family friends sort of steered him away from BSD and and installed Fedora Core instead. It's kind of just kind of interesting. I, I do kind of wonder about Hacker Cracker now. I have to try to remember to check it out at some point. The um the little miniature story, the little example that he gave about the HTTPD configuration file. That it's really funny that he mentions that because that is truly truly one of the things that that was one of the things that kind of got me that it sort of highlighted for me that that debian just wasn't something that i wanted to run on a server and i I remember it very specifically being the the apache apache 2 that that thing that he's mentioning i remember that i remember that annoying me as well i'm not saying that it's justified that it annoyed me um, but it is funny that he mentions it as an annoyance as well i think that the you know the the debian way it is truly the debian way and that's not a bad thing at all because other other things have their ways as well and it's just one of those things that you get in unix but the debian way strikes me as being specifically debian and if you're not used to that and if you're used to i guess like the generic unix way then the debian way can be quite quite sort of an upheaval of course, the, the the same is true for, for instance, something on Red Hat. I mean, they do a lot of things according to a sort of. I mean, they they kind of help define the Linux standard base, but they they do have things, especially in in when you're um when you're registering systems with with their support channels and so on. It's just so violently different than what you're used to that it, it takes a long time to sort of to to warm up to it. Same goes for, I guess, SE Linux. I mean, famously, some people still can't wrap their mind around that. I mean, I don't know that I wrap my mind around it. It's it's no longer um, shocking to me, but it but it definitely, you know, it it, it is so unique that it, it kind of it stands. These things stand out as distribution specific, and and it kind of it kind of colors that distribution for you one way or another you kind of view it a little bit differently so those were the sort of the highlights of that origin story for me i'm sure there are other things that you identified with maybe the the specific the specific things you know the 40 gig hard drive and the 
the Pentium 2, 3, and 4, and the um, AMD K6, or whatever it was, a lot of that didn't apply to me. Uh, the 40-gig the, the hard drive, yeah, I remember when hard drives were really small. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, there, there are interesting memories of, of the push and pull. I mean, I remember um, when the, the amount of RAM was a, a serious problem, and, and I haven't had that problem in ages, and I don't know if that's just because I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford the RAM that I need or whether I'm using a lot of work computers and they always come with a bunch of RAM. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I mean, that was one of the driving points. I mean, there were a lot of driving points, but when I switched to Linux, one of the problems that I was seeking to solve is that my main multimedia computer did not have enough RAM, could not take enough RAM. The, 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 the amount of RAM that I needed to put into the thing, it would not accept. And I was looking to get onto um, commodity hardware so that I could have more RAM. And Linux uh, enabled me to do that and solved the problem for me. Okay, so that's that's it. That's Kevin's email. It's very, very interesting, very cool, very fun. Lots of memories. Thanks for sharing. Let's go take a coffee break, and then we'll address Michael's email. <laughs> That's what this episode is about. Michael emailed a, a while ago and was talking about a couple of different things. He, he mentioned a Nintendo Switch that he had, like, restricted to its own VLAN, and he was really disappointed that he had it, and it was horrible, and, but he needed it because it's a Nintendo and it's really fun, blah, blah, blah. So two things about that. Well, lots of things, but two two things in general. Broadly speaking, two things. First of all, he emailed back and wanted to clarify a little bit uh, about appwiz.cpl. He does a great job of explaining what it is. It is still Greek to me. Um, you, you have to understand, dear listener, when I say that I've not used Windows, I, I truly mean I've not used Windows. Like, I've, I mean, I can't, I can no longer say I've never used Windows, because I, I have, I have touched it now. It is something that I have, I've, I've sat in front of a Windows computer. I've had to test a Python application on it. I've done some things on on a Windows computer, so that's that's no longer true. Um, it used to be true up until very just a couple of years ago, when I said I never used Windows before. It was like literally true. I'd never used Windows. Um, so I, my my background in this stuff is shockingly like pretend like you're talking to someone who's never heard of Linux if you're talking to me about Windows. Um, so in other words, as don't don't assume that I don't, I've never heard of Linux. Assume I've never heard of Windows, and then proceed from that point. Um, okay, so he says in his email, I mentioned appwiz.cpl. This is the programs and features, colon, add and remove software dialog that allows you to uninstall software in Windows. It is built into Windows. I referred to it as appwiz.cpl because in Windows 10, which I had to use for a previous job, it is not possible to open control panel dialogs from the start menu, without knowing their application name, netwiz.cpl, sysdm.cpl, etc. So that's, um, I, I, I kind of get it. There, so it's a control panel, and on Windows 10, you can't open it without 
typing in the, I guess, the executable, or the, the yeah, the control panel name, like the proper name. Um, yeah, I think I, I actually do get that. So, okay, cool. It's control panel. Uh, I didn't know that's how you uninstalled software on Windows. I thought you um, dragged it into the trash. That's how I would have done it. He says, thanks for your insight on mobile. I greatly respect your avoidance of mobile technology. It's probably for the better. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot lately since the email. And it's it's just one of those things where, um, I mean, you know, I mean, mobile is going to, con- is, 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 it's not going anywhere. I understand that. And I don't want to be so, I don't want to avoid it so much that I end up not understanding it later on when I need to understand it. And when I say that I need to understand it, I don't mean for work and for money. I mean f- to sort of, to to make intelligent decisions about what mobile platform to resort to in, in, in a world where it is uh, taken for granted. So th- there's, yeah, I've, I've got an awareness that I need to sort of, look at mobile technology closer, and I do follow it, and I've been messing around with some Java and stuff like that, so, you know, kind of edging my way towards something Android-like, but uh, certainly not ready to embrace it. And I I guess that is truly my final answer, until there's something open source and and truly worth my time, uh, I I just kind of can't be bothered. So that's... That's where I stand on that still. It is just kind of disappointing in a sort of global view that humanity didn't learn from previous mistakes. You know, we couldn't we couldn't start mobile off on the right foot. We couldn't take everything that we learned from the computer industry and its failures and apply it to mobile to make it great. We just started over, as if though we'd never done anything like this before. And it's pretty, it's pretty disappointing, I gotta say. There's, there's a bunch of software decisions that, that aren't very good. There are a bunch of hardware decisions that aren't very good. It's, I mean, if, if you can find a mobile that you can swap out a battery on these days, that would be cool. You know, that would be a great advancement. Um, something that you could upgrade, that would be kinda neat. Something that you could modularly upgrade, and so on. So yeah, it's 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 rather confusing uh, and and disappointing. There's not it's just puzzling to me why we didn't you know we we didn't look at things and say okay well the computer industry is pretty out of control. We should uh, we should develop a platform for mobile that that enables people to just hold on to literally the same device for years and years and years to come and just sort of self self regulate and be and and even though we we can make software that pushes the hardware further and further and further we just won't do that we'll 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 stay with this hardware platform and it'll be the mobile platform and it's just that's not what we're doing you know and it's just this relentless sort of push towards better and better hardware better and better software or or heavier and heavier software and and in the end i just i i see people getting new cell phones every three years every five years uh and we're just creating all this technical waste that we don't know what to do with. It's just kind of astonishing to me, is all, and it's not that exciting to me either. So it's it's a bunch of it's a bunch of sort of meaningless capitalism for really no payoff. Now, Michael also mentioned that he had a Nintendo Switch, and I personally, Clatu, wanted to respond to to sort of comment on that because I think it's emblematic of a lot of a lot of things as a as a user of open source and as a supporter of free culture and all that other stuff, we all have something that 
you know, there are things in our lives that don't that don't sort of tie into that in any way. So you might have a, net, a home network that's entirely, essentially free and open source software, except for that that one device on the network that's just not it it alone is the thing and and increasingly these days i mean even your tv set might be the thing right because it's it's some kind of black box some i had an email previously about about that very subject if i recall correctly so it's the, the nintendo switch is is a, it's about more than the nintendo switch it's it's the thing in your life that doesn't quite fit into what you have proposed what you have sort of declared for yourself to to be sort of your default or your your ideal really and i gotta say i mean and it doesn't even have to be technology right it could be it could be art it could be culture it could be um food it could be any number of things so it could be uh, consumerism it could be um whether or not you are creating your own furniture or you're buying furniture from a store you know you could just literally it could be in any aspect of your life there's this there's a, some kind of line that that we all draw as to the 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 convenience factor or the experience factor and I'll I'll talk about what I mean by that versus the I guess the idealism that we've sort of declared for ourselves. And idealism is is great and I love it and and it is kind of equally dangerous because obviously it can get a little bit out of hand, especially if we think about it in our own heads too much. We sit around and just kind of mull it over and we kind of sometimes we can drum ourselves up into almost a fanaticism. And and fanaticism I don't I don't know that anyone is really all that fond of. I'm I'm certainly not too fond of it myself. I, I think that it tends to be more dangerous than healthy. So there, there's a there's a little bit of a push and pull there between what we what we want to stand for and we want to support in our own lives versus what simply makes life um, a little bit more pleasant. So I'm going to kind of focus on on the Nintendo Switch or the the gaming aspect of of things. And and I guess I'll probably let other things creep in, like the um, the the art arts uh, and culture sort of aspect. But both of those two things have, and you know, I before I begin that, I should say that there are certainly there's a certainly a very simple reductionist kind of way to respond to this gut feeling that well the Nintendo Switch is not free and open source, and that's the one thing on my network that I truly regret. And I think the easy way to to sort of make that go away for yourself, and we all do this because it is that easy, is to just say, well, you know what, it's just too complicated. There, there's too much in this world, in the technology space especially, to try to, you know, there's, it's, it's just never going to happen. You're never going to be able to, 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 to carve away everything but the free and open source. And, and the easy example of that is the laptop, right? You say, well. I've got everything free and open source on here. And then someone comes in and says, well, your firmware is not free and open source. And then maybe you throw that laptop out because it doesn't have the right chip for the core boot thing. So you throw it out, you get a new one. You say, okay, well, this is truly free and open source because it's got the core boot. It's got free and open source firmware. Everything on this thing is free and open source. Someone comes in and says, well, actually, the imprint of the CPU design on the silicon is not open source and then what do you do and and it's just it you know you, you'll just go on and you'll drive yourself crazy and even if you 
managed to find, you know, you, maybe you go and get a, a, a power, open power, a risk processor with core boot and your Linux and open source software stuff on there. And then someone's going to come along and say, well, you know, it's great that you've done that, but, you know, you can't actually replicate any of this. You're, you're locked into a closed system because you're reliant upon the vendors and you don't know what the vendors have done anyway. And, you know, and so it's, it'll, it will literally drive you crazy if you try to pursue this, this total, this kind of pure, unblemished purity of, of free and open source. And so that's the easy sort of reduction is kind of like, ah, oh, let's not think about it too much. You'll never really achieve it anyway, so why bother? But I've never really loved those kinds of arguments because they are kind of defeatist. They they, they kind of just tell you, well, you're trying too hard for something that you can never achieve, so you may as well stop trying. And that doesn't seem like a very positive message. That's kind of kind of depressing, actually, and kind of kind of makes you think, well, why am I even bothering to run open source at all in that case? So I don't I don't love that sort of argument. And and the thing that I rather think about are these 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 aspects or these these tiers in life a, a tiered structure um where not tiers like you're sad but tiers uh levels in, in life where you're you're sort of looking at the the importance of of a certain set of things and this isn't perfect either and i'm going to address that in a moment but um even in open source software for instance uh th- there is a certain level of of significance and, and i've said this before and that is to say that open source, if you never look at the source code yourself, then it is functionally not open source. I mean, it is, but it isn't, right? Because you're not looking at that source code. So you're not directly benefiting from the fact that this code is open source. You are simply believing people when they say, oh, this is open source. And we have a lot of people to believe. We have packagers package maintainers we have distro maintainers and builders and and they've all said that they've looked at that they've that they verify that the code is available and i know from experience that once you start packaging something up and you start maintaining it for a good long while then you do get to start you you actually do start to get pretty familiar with the code maybe not every line of it but you you definitely sort of know the structure of the code you know how it's how it compiles you know when you know, you know what to look for. You know what a normal compile looks like, and so on. So there's there's a level of abstraction there that we're all okay with when we say that we run free and open source software. Nevertheless, it's we don't we, we don't look at the source code, so it's not open to us. It's simply open, and we believe that that's a good thing. But we're not leveraging the strength of it being open ourselves. We're not going into the code and changing things. We're not auditing it for security and so on. In other words, we are prioritizing something in in that action. We're saying, well, it's important to me that it's open source, but only conceptually. It doesn't, it is not vital to me that it is open source, really. Like, it, it's great that it's open source, and that fits in with my ideal, but I'm not actually going to, to to take advantage of that. I'm simply, I am stating that if something has this tag on it, I will use it, and if it does not have that tag, then I will not. And that's totally fair. We're allowed to do that. We are perfectly, or th- that is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It is opposed to, however, someone who does take advantage of the source code that, that is open. For instance, uh, for FFmpeg, I, I've never run a stock instance of FFmpeg 
I shouldn't say never. I, I have not run a stock instance of FFmpeg in probably uh, about probably about at least eight years now. It's just not something. Once I discovered that I could compile, or that I that it would be advantageous to me that I could the, the, to compile FFmpeg myself, that's what I've done. And I've done that for yeah, like I say, at least a good eight years at this point, probably longer, but certainly eight years for sure. So in a in a very real sense, I'm quite familiar with FFmpeg source code, and I take advantage of the fact that it is open source. Now, some other programs out there, um, like Ogvorbis, I don't compile that from source. Well, I actually do, but no, I don't. I'm sorry, that comes with Slackware. So I I've, I don't think I've ever compiled Ogvorbis myself. I've compiled tools for Ogvorbis, but I've never customized it. I've just let someone else write the script, and I run the script. So that I don't really take advantage of. FFmpeg, for instance, I do, and a, a lot of libraries underneath FFmpeg. Um, a lot of software that I've that that I run on my Slackware box, I compile myself, and with a, a, a number of them, I, I actually do. I, I change options and things like that. So there, there's a hefty chunk of stuff that I actually do take advantage of the the source being open, and there's a hefty chunk of stuff that I I truly truly do not take advantage of it at all. So the advantage is kind of an inherited in, in ad advantage, and what I'm trying to illustrate there is that we do we we have we have these sort of these levels of of just how important is this aspect of an application, and I think I've I've mentioned this before. If if we get so high up on the ladder that that there's an application or something or, or a web service, a service, uh, what is it, a so software as a service, something out there that we're using online or that we're that maybe it's a closed source application, but it works on Linux and we really like it, so we're using it. And what's the importance there? Well, at some level, at, at some point, you know, it's, especially if it's a online service, I mean, a lot of us are using non-free and open source online services, so you kind of look. I mean, if not in real life, then at work. And, and you might look at it and think, well, okay, so I know that this is dangerous. I'm in the danger zone here. I'm outside of my my ideal, my philosophical ideal, that's for sure. But for whatever reason, I, I know that I need to be here. And I, I know be, because I've got this ideal and because I've because I understand what's at stake here, I know that I'm in danger of something. And what is the thing that you're in danger of? Now, if the only thing that you're in danger of is losing... Uh, sort of a badge of honor in your own mind for for not running closed source software, then I, I don't know that that's a hundred percent. I mean, it is enough if that's what you want. You know, if that's what you've set up for yourself, if that's the game that you are playing, then that's enough. If that's your lose condition, then you've hit it. You know, or you're getting really close to it. So stop it. You're gonna lose. But in reality, that's not a lose condition. It's just a thing. It's a thing that you can do. And maybe you don't like it. Maybe you do like it. Maybe you need to mitigate it a little bit. And for me, at least, mitigation would be, well, if I'm here, if I'm in this area where I'm using an online service and, and I don't own, I can't replicate that service. I can't take that service and install it on my server. Or I could, but I haven't. The the important thing for me is, and I'm saying me personally, like Klaatu, is is the exportability of the of the data that I am submitting to the thing, and that's a that's a that's that's a huge thing, right? If I'm putting a bunch of effort into a service that's online that I do not own, then I want to make sure that the data that I'm putting in, I can also then get back out. 
Now, I'm not even talking about can you actually remove it from the server. That's a whole other problem, and I, I feel like that gets into more of the privacy issues. So I'm not talking specifically about Gmail, because I don't use that, but for instance, something like, um, well, I mean, I have fake accounts, uh, dozens of fake, fake accounts, but I mean, for my own stuff, I don't use that. Um, for, for instance, um, if I'm submitting artwork to an online art site, like a clip art site or something, can I get that clip art back off of that site? If you can't, then you're you're putting stuff, you're shoveling stuff into this sort of black hole, and if it goes away, or if it decides that it doesn't want your stuff anymore, or whatever, then possibly you're going to lose access to that. Or if they close up shop, or or if they go paid instead of zero uh, dollars, then maybe you'll lose your stuff, you know, and so on. So kind of, what's the what's the um, the interchange format here? Is there one? Is can you get your data back? Can you take the the data from that service and put it into another and so on. And if you go farther out into really closed source stuff, then that's exactly what you need to start looking for is that the open standards. Well, are they at least following, are they at least adhering to a standard, an industry standard that, that if I put this, you know, 3D model into this software so that it can get uh, textured or, or painted, can I then get all of that work back out and put it back into the open source one that I'm actually basing my production around and so on? So there's a bunch of questions that kind of revolve around once we when once we get out of that comfort zone of 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 our of our ideal situation because it's a big diverse world and no matter how much we sort of deep down want everyone to switch to Linux and, and to free and open source software, that's not going to happen. And there's an argument that it shouldn't happen, that 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 every everyone adhering to the exact same ideal would be a little bit creepy. So, I mean, I'm not saying that I wouldn't like to see some scales being tipped in other directions. Although, then again, what are we seeing right now, if not that? But, um, you know, it's it's it's... There's an argument there, I think, that, that, that there need to be some things out there that aren't exactly what we want. So, if we're getting into that danger zone, there are some considerations. It's a big world. You're gonna, you're gonna run into those things. Now, here's the thing about the Nintendo Switch specifically. And this is actually a topic pretty near and dear to my heart, um, just by choice, not, not by anything, not by career or by circumstance. It's just purely by choice. But, um, games. Are, are video games. It's a big culture. It's a it's a culture all its own. And you know, we were talking um, back in episode 37 about hacker culture because the season 13, episode 37, 1337. Which, by the way, I remembered that I I omitted something very important from my memory of that weird leet speak stuff. It's completely off topic. Sorry, but I got a Casio watch because as a speaker gift for a, a conference that I went to that I was speaking at they gave me a Casio watch one of those old school Casios with a calculator on it and it suddenly I suddenly remembered like, like a flash I I remembered as a kid people would take calculators and spell things out or or type numbers in and then they would flip it upside down or it would spell it would apparently spell letters you know so you could do four no I guess you would have to do 0.77 E H, and then you would turn it over, and it would be hello, and so on. There were other words, but that's the one I'll use. And I remembered that that was a thing, so that kind of brought back. 
I, I wonder if the whole leet speak phenomenon, if it was a phenomenon, uh, came partly from from that tradition of of calculator calculator writing. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. It was just a sudden. Yeah, we we needed to address that. That's addressed. So the gaming culture, it's big culture. It's a rich culture, and I think you know, as a, a computer person and as a person who likes to play games of all sort, um, I, I feel like the gaming culture is um, it's very unique and it's kind of significant. It's a portion of it's a it's it's a subculture within you know sort of computing. So you might be into academic computing, you might be into mainframes, you might be into servers, you might be into anything, but there's that other group out there that 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 are gamers and they have their own language and their own interests and their own sort of expressions of of their culture and it's a great thing. And you can really get into it. You can choose to get into that culture if you want. And that's the way of life you can get into things because you because they make you happy that's it's important to do that that's a healthy thing to do and so gaming if that's a thing that interests you and makes you happy um you know there there is a couple of different expressions within that culture right there's um there's the there's the expression of gaming that is not open source that's sort of the big one that we're all pretty much aware of and then there's the expression of it uh, of all the open source stuff uh, and then I guess nowadays there's even that sort of well I guess broadly those are the two categories if we're looking at it that way but but you could also kind of sneak in a little third category there and say that there's that expression of gamer culture who are playing closed source on Linux because Steam is now on Linux which is a big deal for 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 gaming so you've got these sort of different aspects of gaming culture I and mean, those are just those are just a few but they exist and you know the the big one is the one where it's Windows people, you know, Windows computers playing, or, yeah, Windows computers playing uh, games. And it's smaller Linux users playing the same games, and then still smaller, I think, Linux gamers playing independent open source open source indie games so it's not just independent games it's open source independent games which believe me those two don't necessarily go hand in hand and if it brings you happiness to sort of commune with people who are playing games then the the biggest opportunity that the people you're going to run into nine times out of ten like almost you know literally by definition like that you know lots of more times are going to be the windows users who are playing games on windows computers i mean that's just or on consoles so your playstations your xboxes your nintendo switches especially the switch now because they're porting everything to the switch so you've got you've got a huge opportunity to kind of get into that scene if that's what you're looking to get into and if that's what you're getting into then part of the part of the inheritance with that is the the non-open sourcedness of the product should it be open source? Yeah, it should be open source for lots of different reasons. It should be open source because we can all learn from open source. I think we've I think we've demonstrated that pretty effectively in the open source community. Um, and I and I mean very broadly, like the world can learn from open source. Like it it actually furthers the software when it's open source. But also individually, like people who know nothing about nothing can learn about the thing and then become experts in in the thing. Um, you know, and if it's if someone's keen to start writing video games, then having open source video games out there for them to learn from is is fantastic. 
and there are some, but but certainly, I mean, can you imagine if um, I don't know, um, Assassin's Creed after ten years of existing just by default became open source? Like people would just, I mean, it would be such a huge thing. I mean, yeah, it's old by then, but at least they could learn the 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 basics of of something and and build upon those ideas or at least get kick started with those ideas. So those are those are important reasons. Another no small no no less of a, of a good reason is preservation of culture. And I think I think honestly emotion on an emotional level this is the one that kind of gets me the most and it's there's the fact that the entire video game industry relies upon a legal gray area of emulation to preserve their own history. And it's it's shocking that the companies producing video games and producing consoles and producing gaming systems in general um, that they're okay with just letting that be their insurance policy. And they, they contribute almost nothing to it. I guess you could argue now that Valve is contributing to it because they, they work on the, um, on the essentially the wine libs. So I guess arguably they're sort of contributing to the preservation of the engine. But, but there are so many things out there that, that the video game companies just... They don't care. They're letting things just fall into oblivion, and the only re- the only way that that we're able to play them is because some very clever people dump ROMs and reverse engineer things. And it's 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 pretty astonishing, and and I would say hugely shameful from a tech technological standpoint, as well as just kind of it's an affront to the culture, right? I mean, it's just like there's this whole culture that supports the industry, and there's no no not even a there's there just seems to be no obligation to to supporting that culture's history so it's it's like i say on an emotional level i think that one's the one that kind of gets me the most is the the sheer irresponsibility of that so what does this all got to do with michael having a nintendo switch why am i talking about this and why why did his email make me think that this was something to talk about well i think it's important because the the idea here is that life is more than just the open source software that you run. Um, and, you know, if if part of the experience of your life is enjoying a video game, and those video games exist on the Nintendo Switch, and they're not open source, then I think that that's probably something that you should do. <laughs> you know, because it's just, you're not going to be able to open source all of the things, and so playing a Nintendo Switch is probably going to be, is, is probably fine. And mitigating any kind of risk, I think, is a smart thing to do. Like, if you see that, that this device is on your network and you're not super happy with it being on your network, but it wants to be online, then then sure, setting up a VLAN is probably a really, really smart way of, of doing that. I think that's a, a brilliant way, actually. And I guess in this, especially in these kinds of cases, I'm not convinced that not participating in that culture is the way to persuade the um, the 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 totally corporate foundation for that culture. I mean, that's a whole problem with that culture, right? Is that, that it is truly, it's based entirely around a proprietary everything. Everything about it is proprietary. There's no, there, you know, Mario is not a Creative Commons licensed character. Star Wars is not Creative Commons. You know, all of these things that, that these huge pop cultural phenomenons are, are springing from, have sprung from, aren't themselves available to to the the culture, they 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 are owned by some some other entity than the people 
making them into a phenomenon. And and I mean that's why there is a legal gray area around all of this stuff because it's just at at a certain point everyone is saying well basically it belongs to us even though legally it doesn't. So here's the thing. Many years ago I decided to do something really rather silly and I took my all of the albums that I own, all the music albums that I own and I divided them into three folders and the three folders were independent infected and frozen that's what i called them them so into the independent folder i put all the all the music by artists that i knew personally or that i that that i i knew through a you know i I had some kind of very close relationship to a couple of degrees separation from and i knew that they were independent artists i knew that they weren't signed on a big uh record label or anything like that and so i I just sort of, it was a little bit of a fuzzy definition because, I mean, initially I said, okay, nobody on a record label. But then I realized that a record label didn't really have to be, I mean, you can say that you have a record label just by announcing you have a record label. So it didn't make any sense to do, to, 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 to define it that way. So I, I was, I, I had to kind of be a little bit more flexible about that than I realized I was going to have to be initially. Initially I thought I would literally just find the people not on a record label that I owned, and put them into that folder. Didn't work out that way, but I got pretty close to that. You know, I got the the gist of it. The infected folder had stuff where um, I felt like, yes, it was on a record label, or uh, maybe it wasn't on a record label. No, it would have it would have to be on a record label. Um, but it was it, it wasn't sort of in the pop scene, right? So it wasn't it wasn't something that was sent out to radio stations. It was it, it's music that was written for some other purpose. So for instance, uh video game music I ended up putting in there because the music for video games typically isn't to um you know it, it isn't music to to sell on its own. It was incidental music uh that got accompanied that accompanied something else. So it was kind of this weird kind of really f- even fuzzier than the first one, right? So you're you you're probably already getting a feeling that the system isn't working out so well for me. And then finally in the Frozen one, I put all the the stuff that it was designed by a, a record label. It was put out by a record label for success. It was designed and intended to sell lots and lots of copies. And that would have, you know, that's it's you know big popular rock bands and synthesizer bands and stuff like that. Like all the people who had stuff out there in the record stores. They were doing performance, like uh, live shows and so on. And th- those were my three folders. And I told someone about those three folders one time, and they just looked at me and thought I was absolutely crazy and like I had insulted art itself. And in a way, I guess I had. But I mean, then again, it's my life. I can do whatever I want, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just it's that's how I chose to to organize my my music. And I did that. Uh, many, many years ago, and I, I I never intended to leave it that way, and out of sheer laziness, and because now I just kind of, I know where everything is, I've I've actually not disorganized, you know, I have not extricated it from that horrible system of organization. And the interesting thing that eventually kind of sort of surfaced for me was this realization, well, a couple of different things, the realization that number one, when you sit down to enjoy music, I think for most people, when you sit down to enjoy music, the the license of that music does not matter to you. It just doesn't. It's it's artwork, it's a cultural artifact, and 
If you don't intend to remix that song or to use a snippet of that song in some other work that you are then going to redistribute or whatever, then the license of it just doesn't matter. It doesn't make the music sound any better. It doesn't make it sound any worse. It's, it, it is what it is. Now, if you're not in the mood for that music, even if part of that music is the license, so for instance, if I sit down and I think I'm really kind of fed up with um, commercialism and the, the way that the world tries to sell me stuff, and the last thing I want to listen to right now is this big-name rock band because they just they they remind me of of what I'm not impressed with right now. So I will listen to this little indie artist over here because it sounds a certain way, or it or I know just in the back of my mind that it's not it it, it didn't go to it didn't get made in by the millions. It got made by like the hundred CDR pressings. So or not at all. It just got distributed online and then it vanished one day. I've got lots of music like that. So it doesn't functionally matter it just it just matters to you or to me in this case so that's one thing the other thing that i've noticed is that and this is kind of the opposite of that is that by dividing the stuff up into these three horribly fuzzy and ill-defined categories it has highlighted to me um sort of a, a little a bit of a temperature gauge of of how much um of, of what I'm, of what I've been up to lately, how, you know, what what kind of, I don't know, what's the, I guess, mood or whatever, or where have I been hanging out most? Have I been going to the big, uh, glitzy places, or have I been sort of hanging out in the small little um, dive bars with the indie artists? Where on that spectrum have I been lately? Does it matter? Probably not, but it gives me some feedback into my own habits, and that has been interesting purely from a from just an analytical view point of just thinking, ah, I've noticed that I've really been into this lately, and I've been listening to a lot of it, and I haven't really delved into that folder recently. Okay, I mean, big deal, right? Not a big deal at all. It's just, it's a thing. But then you notice it. So you know what I mean? So you're, you're in terms of being able to track your own habits, in terms of, of, your, of, of, what, of what kind of entertainment you are seeking out, that gives you data. So I'm mentioning this because there is a way of of understanding your own desire to either build or partake. And that's those are the two things that we can do with a lot of this kind of cultural stuff. We can either build our own whatever, whether it's our own scene or whether it's our own community, our own work of art, whatever it might be. You can build it or you can go to something that already exists and partake in it. And if you're partaking in it, then you kind of don't have much of a say in whether it, in how it's structured. You're there as a customer. And if you're building it, obviously you have all the say. The difference in enjoyment and in experience are, you know, it's just two, it's two different expressions. If you're partaking, then everything's done for you, and you can enjoy the thing that other people are enjoying, and it's all very. And there's probably a lot of people there. You've you've hit sort of critical mass. You've got a lot of people partaking in the same thing. You can all talk about it. You can share in that experience, and that's that's a thing. It's brilliant. Then again, it's also eating the world, right? It's huge. It's big. It's taking over everything. It's hefty. It's hungry. It's never going to end. It demands that you continue to pay into it because in order to partake, you have to pay and so on. The thing that you're building, a bunch of other stuff, right? You, 
you don't have as many people you don't have any money you you might not even have the technical expertise and you and when you do have the technical expertise it it eventually walks away because it has to go get a real job or it has to it it lost interest in the project or it had to change jobs or whatever might happen these are the the decisions that we have to make we have to look at the things that are in our lives we have to look at what we want to experience and how we want to experience them and then we have to sort of balance it out and sometimes it's over on the side of something that you're just going to and paying your admission to get in and you're experiencing the thing and you have lots of people to talk to about the experience and it's a powerful powerful thing because there's a lot of money dumped into it and there's a lot of expertise and there's a lot of other people to share it with and so on and then other times it's sort of leaning towards okay let's try to fight all of that let's try to build up something strong over here and that's a different experience that's a completely different thing it's got a completely different set of emotions and feelings sort of bound up in it in it because you're building something together there's this elation there's this rush of what's possible and there's pride in what you've been able to do and there's loneliness of how why aren't there more people here and so on and you know if you're one person if you're if you if you prefer one over the other a hundred percent then that's great not everyone does sometimes you have to split the difference a little bit and and then there's that gray area in between where you kind of mostly you're over here but sometimes you're over there and you're all over the place so i don't know what i'm trying to say is that it's a big diverse world out there and we have to figure out what is safe and i don't mean safe in the privacy sense i just mean what's safe in the kind of looking ahead sense what do we want to support what kind of support is most meaningful both for good and for bad right i mean what kind of support is most meaningful to Nintendo? Is it purchasing their consoles, or is it buying into their sort of into their mythos, or is it um, just perpetuating their name and making sure that that their culture continues, but by by being a rogue and emulating their their games and doing their work for them by 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 preserving their 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 culture? I don't know. Like, what what's most meaningful? meaningful for them i don't know we'd have to ask someone i don't know what their game plan is and then we have to ask what's most meaningful to independent game creators do they need help building assets do they need help programming do they need music do they just need the culture do they just need a group of people excited and, and interested in open source gaming willing to play these things and test them out and and talk about them and stream them and so on games are like music it's essentially art and culture it just happens to have a bunch of program on the back end and how we choose to divide our our attention among all the different options it's more than just the license it's more than the ideal it's it's about the experience it's about what we're building for the future it's about a lot of these different conflicting sometimes interests that we have and i think as long as we keep that ideal in mind we can work on both and we can experience both and i mean hopefully eventually we can work to change the industry to where it at the very least opens its code at the end of some reasonable length of time so that others can preserve and learn from it and maybe we can even get certain things culturally changed within the computing industry as a whole uh, in terms of how our user data is 
used and abused, and that'll affect all the industries. I think that's it. I know that was pretty long and a little bit rambling, but um, it's it's a big topic, something that I've thought about a lot over the years, and just wanted to kind of kind of get some thoughts out there. So thanks for listening. I will talk to you next week. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Granny, I smell the conspiracy.